this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. My next guest, Gary Miller, sold Aragon Consulting to IBM. They originally approached him with an offer of three times EBITDA. And I will let you hear what he did with that offer and how he got it up. I won't tell you the punchline, but listen to the interview and you'll be astounded at what he did with that original offer. What I loved about his interview, and I want you to listen for his tone of voice, the way he described his negotiation stance with IBM, always respectful, always considered, always very thoughtful in his response, even though he was killing them with kindness and getting them to bring up their offer every step of the way. Just an incredible, incredible negotiator. Lots of tidbits on the negotiation sort of ins and outs of dealing with a very large organization. He talks about at great length the difference between an asset and a share sale, a stock sale, I should say, the Chinese walls and having a transaction law firm, making sure you've got those in place. We talk a little bit about the difference between stock grants and options, which I found fascinating, frankly. So I hope you do as well. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Gary Miller. Gary Miller, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Glad to be here. Tell me about Aragon Consulting. What kind of consulting did you guys do? Uh, we did. Uh, uh, we attacked a number of management consulting issues. One of those being M and A, uh, particularly when a one of our clients wanted to um, diversify or divest. Uh, either one of those scenarios, and we helped them launch new products and services as well to uh, have the reverse of that effect. How big did you get this company? Because most consultancies that I'm aware of, especially sort of you know somewhat sophisticated ones, like I think the topic that you're describing, they generally are a very small company. Like the 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 owner, maybe one or two helpers. But I understand you got you got this business up to be fairly significant in terms of size. Well, in comparison to who we sold it to, we we were a rounding error on the balance sheet. But we were national and international. We had eight offices throughout the nation. Um, I started the company with myself and an admin assistant, and it grew from there. We had 153 employees uh, deployed throughout the U.S. when I sold the company. And I understand that that over time you brought on partners. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Why did you feel it was necessary to bring on partners as opposed to just just employees? Um, Retaining high-powered talent is always difficult for any company, regardless of its size. It was my belief uh, that if I gave stock uh, of the company to the key individuals that I needed, I would have anchor 
than strength that I think any uh, any company needs to be able to grow to the levels that we wanted to grow. So I selected partners that had specific uh, skill sets uh, in various industries and then subject matter expertise within those industries because those were the major sectors that we were targeting, uh, telecommunications, uh, utilities, insurance, financial services, technology, and telecommunications. Those were the big industries we served. How did you convince, because I mean, I, I think a lot of uh, owners and maybe some listeners to this show would would be thinking about sharing a little bit of equity with a senior person in order to retain them and, and, and to grow with them. One of the challenges, of course, on the other side of the table is, is that that being a minority shareholder in a privately held business doesn't always work for the minority shareholder because for those you know shares to be worth anything, the majority shareholder needs to needs to decide to sell. Um, did you guys talk about the fact that you were planning to sell? How, how did you convince those partners that those shares were real and they were going to have value in the future? That's a great question. There's um, uh, two things we took into consideration. One, I chose to give the stock away as opposed to selling it. Um, as a result of that, uh, if they chose to leave the company, uh, before we sold the company, uh, they had to give back the stock and we paid them a penny a share for the stock. Uh, second, it was the retention mechanism for those people because when we had issues at our board meetings, each person had an equal vote to the other. That is, it was it whether you own $5 worth of stock or, or 50000 worth of stock, it didn't matter. Um, each person had a single vote, including myself. Um, as a result of that, their voices were on par with mine, even though I was the controlling shareholder. Um, but at the same time, if, if each of the minority shareholders felt as if they were equal partners to me in that case. The corollary to that is our decisions had to be unanimous or we did not go through it. So one shareholder could hold up an entire proposition or a change in direction that we thought the five of us thought we ought to go. Uh, Man, five, how, did you get it, how did you get anything done? You know what? We were pretty much together before we ever hit the formality of the boardroom. Uh, we socialized it, discussed it, modified it, changed it, et cetera. And the only thing that I reserved in that case was if there were something critical to the company, uh, then I would call for a share vote. And in the 18-year history of the company, I only had to do that twice. What over? What was the decision uh, one, you were trying to make? Uh, one was a, a, a partner who became personally involved with one of the employees. Uh, and we made the decision that uh, uh, that he should go. Uh, the second decision uh, revolved around uh, a direction that we were going to go in terms of our R&D work. And uh, three of the partners didn't feel we had enough money to fund it. 
as it turned out, we did have because we closed a very large engagement, which provided us uh, the internal capital from our working capital to, to go on in that direction. And it was the direction of neural network incorporation in, the, in terms of our predictive modeling. As it turned out, that's what IBM wanted um, when we sold the company to IBM. But I had, oh. since, we, since we didn't have unanimity in that decision, I had to vote by share. Okay, I want to get to the neural networks and IBM in a second. Before we get there, though, um, along the way, you know, most consultancies, the, the knock is they don't sell for very much when they sell. But the best part is, you know, they've got fat profit margins and they're relatively not that capital intensive. So you can declare a lot of dividends along the way. Are, are you, you know, but in your case, you were growing quite quickly. Are you declaring dividends year after year? Are, are these shareholders making money through dividends as well? What's that uh, situation? Uh, it was checkered for us. We would go our, we would go through a strategic planning process, and our CFO would provide us with a variety of, of uh, spreadsheets, charts, and so forth, identifying the working capital needs we thought we would have to have given the strategic plans that we had developed. Uh, that always came first. The second thing is that we kept a reserve balance on hand. Um, of about three quarters of a year's operating expenses in the event um, that we couldn't close business we needed to keep the doors open. Um, our headquarters was about 17,000 square feet in St. Louis, and then our other offices ran around 2,500 square feet uh, throughout the U.S., and we had eight other offices uh, in that end. So three quarters of a year of OPEX is a fairly significant chunk of change. Why keep so much on hand? Because we had very expensive talent. Our biggest single expense, uh, operating expense, was um, general administrative. And of that, it was salaries um, to the subject matter experts um, in our firm. Tell me more about this share deal where you gave shares to the partners, minority shareholders, um, but if they left the company on their own accord, they would have to sell them back to the company for a penny. Is, I, I've never heard of this. I've never heard of this, Gary, So, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'd love to know, like, how do you paper a deal like that? What, is that called something? No, uh, it's simply stock grants. And uh, I sold the shares for a penny a share. Uh, as a result of that, they, they, had, they had no income tax to pay when they received their shares, or very minimal at most. And therefore, if they left the company, they, could, they had to return those shares, and we paid them um, uh, a penny a share for the return. So, and, it, and, and the reason we did that was simple. Uh, we weren't trying to make money on the shares. We used it as a retention vehicle and that carrot, if you will, uh, to say, look, someday these shares are going to be worth an awful lot of money. Now, that's not what is just suggest to you that we didn't have uh, bonus programs and, and we had very rich benefits for uh, uh, all of our employees, frankly, and particularly for the shareholders. So they were getting compensation through just through. Uh, other means besides the uh, the stock only. Why use the the stock grants for a penny uh, versus stock options? 
What, what well, would, in a, why would in a, yeah? Go ahead. That's a great question. The reason uh, is is that it was far easier to administer stock grants than it was options. Uh, if the if the company uh, through valuations uh, and we got valuations every two to three years um, uh, until the last five years, then we wound up getting valuations every year and having them updated. But it was simply easier to administer. Uh, it cost us less administrative. We didn't have to keep track of someone. If someone had 150,000 shares, it was worth 150,000 times one penny each. Um, so we didn't have to worry anything about exercising. Uh, we didn't have to worry about down rounds, up rounds. We didn't have to worry about any of those things. Again, it was a retention tool. Um, and since their salaries were, uh, frankly, above normal, um, as you said earlier, most consultancies are a, a cottage industry, one, two, three, maybe four or five people. But in this case, um, we all knew that we would be exiting at some point in time, and more likely than not, it would be a client purchasing us. All right, let's get into that. So you build up this company, you've got 150 employees. I mean, this is a big company. This is, in my view, this is a big consultancy. What was the trigger that made you want to sell it? Um, it, was, it was at a point when we thought we we're going to face an economic downturn. We thought we were at the top of the market. And as it turned out, we were correct. Um, and IBM approached us. Um, we had them as a client for five years. They approached us and they wanted to learn more about our predictive modeling strategy. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I mean, wh what do you mean by a predictive model? Like, it's just uh, to, yeah. in, in layman's uh, terms. Yes, we invented some methodologies in which our clients could simulate new marketing or product sales strategies simultaneously with other strategies and the, the neural networks would learn on demand and give a predictable outcome uh, that was plus or minus 5% in terms of the accuracy category. In addition to that, it also predicted uh, the response of the competitors. So IBM saw this as a great tool in their global services basis. And they wanted to know more about it, so that they asked us if we would license it to them. Um, and uh, uh, we suggested that that probably wouldn't be the, in our best interest, um, because once you license that kind of technology, um, if it works, terrific. If it doesn't work, they would cut you off. And like any other contract, they just wouldn't renew it. And yet they'd still have the intellectual property. So that's why we decided if you want us, you need to buy us as a company. Fascinating. So this is it, this is more than this has happened many times in interviews that I've done for this show. It, you know, what starts out as a licensing conversation, how can we license that IP quickly moves into an acquisition discussion. And it sounds like that's what happened in your case. Where does it go from there? Well, when we said no, they said, well, look, what if we could guarantee you X number of dollars of business? And at the time, they were talking about $20 million a year in revenues to us. Uh, and we, we thought to that, again, we knew enough about the way Fortune 500s and upper middle market companies work. And that that could be a short-lived 
um, contract because in any of their contracts, most companies always have an out. Um, and so we thought we're just better off selling them the company if they want it, or we'll take this technology and take it to HP uh, or McKinsey or any number of other consult Bain as an example. And um, they knew those were our options. So it didn't leave them a lot of, a lot of choice. They either had to buy it or they had to build it themselves because they tried the partnering route in any number of ways. Um, and we just said no to partnering, either buy us or you can go build it yourself. And I mean, IBM's a smart company. They got a lot of people there. Why were you confident that they wouldn't have the ability to build it themselves? Um, they were behind the curve uh, and were limited in the C-suite to only getting to the chief technology officer. We, in turn, were sitting with CEOs and board chairmen. So they wanted our access at that level of the C-suite other than the CIO uh, or someone in charge of, of um, uh, technology in general. So that was another added benefit to them. By picking us up, they picked up our relationships um, uh, as well. And therefore, they provided contracts for all of us for a two-year period. Um, that was a part of the deal. And in a and as a result of that, they paid all cash for the company. Wow, they paid all cash for a consultancy. Yeah, I want to share one thing with you. I was I thought I would be so smart in that I wanted cash and stock, IBM stock. And they made it very clear that they do not dilute their stock by providing stock as an acquisition payment. So it was either if they bought us, it would be all cash or nothing at all. As it turned out, uh, I was much better taking all cash because IBM stock really began to decline uh, at that point. That was uh, that was fortuitous for you, for sure. Did, did, did why did you want stock? A lot of people don't want stock, right? They're just taking their risk and putting it in another another stock. Why were you interested in stock at the time? Well, we believed that IBM on a long term basis would grow. Mm. Um, uh, number one, uh, we were wrong about that. We went into a recession uh, about six months uh, after the deal closed. Uh, so the stock began to go down and down and down. And it's it got down as low as $53 a share at the time when we sold the company. The stock was at 137 a share. Now, wow. of course, I think it's running about 121 a share. So it is, while it's gone up to $150, $160 a share, uh, since we sold the company, it's back down again to $120 a share. And that's, we've had a change in leadership um, uh, at IBM and, and the markets have changed uh, significantly since since we uh, had sold the company. And as a result, uh, it turned out we were far better off with cash. So let's get into the actual sale itself. So you're uh, you're playing hardball with IBM. You're saying, look, if you want us, we're not going to license it to you. You got to buy the company. Did they like who made the first move? Did they come to you and and make an offer for the company? Did you put a price on it? Like how did that work? Yes, uh, the answer is they came to us uh, because we were uh, one of the engagements they had contracted for us was to use this simulator technology. Uh, for a group of their clients. And we were in the background, but in essence, running that technology for them. They liked it, their clients liked it, and that 
that was the catalyst that that they initially came up and and uh, and said we'd like to buy you. So uh, we got together and I said, well, great, uh, give us a term sheet and we'll review it and take a look at it. So we did and, and go on. Yeah, and what was the original offer multiple that they were offering in that first term sheet? Three X of EBITDA. And what was your reaction to that? Well, it was pretty poor from a number of reasons. One is we thought that technology had a lot more power to it and therefore would gain more revenue for IBM or anybody else that would use it. And we didn't think that 3X of EBITDA was adequate compensation for what we thought the long-term stretch was for um, uh, the technology we had invented. That was number one. Number two, they wanted to make an asset purchase. Uh, we then would have been taxed at ordinary income as opposed to a stock sale, which we would have been taxed at long-term capital gains. Um, they finally acquiesced, and and the purchase was a stock purchase versus um, an asset purchase. The due diligence process, by the way, ran ran uh, from the time we started the talks to the time we finished, including the due diligence and the purchase and sale agreement and all of the closing documents was seven months. That's helpful for sure. So you get this offer for three times EBITDA. Um, how did you, you know, you're kind of disappointed internally. How did you react to them? Did you throw your arms up in the air and say, you got to be kidding me? Were you cordial about it? Did you play, like, how did you, I'd, I'd be curious to know the gamesmanship that you pursued in, in sort of drive, trying to get them to drive up their offer. Well, the first thing I did was thank them for their offer. Uh, and I told them how much we appreciated their offer and the thoughtfulness that they had put into it. However, I said, the problem with the offer is that we're going to be taxed at a level that we, we just don't feel we need to be taxed since we're um, a C-Corp and, and, and we want to uh, be able to offset those taxes. So if you want an asset sale, then the price is going to have to go up significantly to pay for the tax liability that we are all going to have as partners in the firm. Did you have a number, did you have a multiple in mind, Gary, that you thought was fair? Uh, yeah, I thought eight times EBITDA was fair. Okay. So you're way off at this point. There are three, you're at eight in your mind. So you said there were more than one point. First, you know, you, you got to drive up your offer here if you want to make it a, an asset sale. What was your second point in your rebuttal? Um, second thing is, and, and the way I did that was it, it never, ever works, at least that I've seen, if you start to get angry over things. And that's where business owners make such big mistakes is they're so emotionally involved. In this case, we as partners uh, treated this just like any other transaction that we would have with our clients. You're courteous, you're nice, but you're firm, and you support that with rational facts. And it was clear to us that they did not have, their acquisition team didn't have the knowledge of tax structure, um, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, reps and warranties um, uh, were way out of line in what they wanted, et cetera. So uh, we uh, engaged a, a pretty strong deal team. Uh, all of us had our independent accountants looking over our various estates. We had estate plans in place, and we had a transaction law firm 
that we had engaged that had had done several deals with IBM, and so we had to set up a Chinese wall, and IBM agreed to that. Um, so we had a different deal team from the law firm than the typical deal team that IBM used with, with since we had a common law firm. Had they not agreed to uh, the Chinese wall, that is the law firm, and had IBM not agreed to allow their firm to work with us in that, it, then we would have sought another transaction law firm. And I'm right. So transactional law firm was important to you. It was because because you have to have the wording of the contract to purchase you is critically important because it could it could be the difference between paying thousands of dollars in taxes for the IRS and at the same time we had to make sure we minimized any legacy liabilities that could come with a stock sale. Got it. Makes sense. So, how do, so where does it go from there? I mean, you, in your head, you're thinking eight. They're thinking three. Did you propose a counteroffer? Um, uh, no, I just asked them to revisit the issues and, and relook at the quality of the company, the bench strength of the company, uh, our pipeline of business, and who our clients were, and see if they may have erred on the side of, of, of a low, low offer there. You are the diplomat of choice, man. I think you should be you should be negotiating world peace. <laughs> well, you're most of the time, but I never, I I never ever wanted to take advantage of someone else's uh, uninformity or ignorance, etc. They were just the, the deal team on the IBM side just wasn't quite as sophisticated um, as. You would think it was, but we were a small, we're a small company compared to IBM. Uh, we were then, and you know. Uh, Do you think you uh, had the the B team? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we were Got a it. small company. They didn't put their, they didn't have the the CFO wasn't looking over this acquisition. Uh, the IBM CFO wasn't. I mean, they, we were several layers below uh, the C suite. We were at the Got division it. level. Okay, that's helpful for sure. So, so what next? They they came back to you, presumably, uh, seeming like negotiating with themselves here. But they came back to you with another offer. What was the the next offer they, in terms they of did. They, multiple? Uh, they came back and said, "Okay, we'll we'll make a stock purchase, and uh, we'll give you eight and a half times EBITDA." And uh, I, I went so wait a minute, Gary. They go from they go from three to eight and a half without. Yes, that's yes. incredible. They did, and. Uh, and I said, I really appreciate that. I need to visit with the other partners, and uh, we'll be back to you. Um, and um, so we came back to them, I guess, three, two or three days later, et cetera. And, um, you know, here's what we have in mind. Um, why don't you just give us uh, 1.5 times our annual revenue? We won't have to worry about anything on that. We'll make it a stock sale, et cetera. And we wound up wound up agreeing on 1.2. And I went back with a higher price that I knew we would never get. But they had to win uh, on this last round of negotiation since they had come up so much from their low offer. And I wanted to give them I want I wanted to give them an opportunity to to say, look, they wanted one five. We've agreed to one two. We've got a good deal here. Let's go. And that's the way it turned out. And what did one two equate to as a multiple of your EBITDA? Uh, let's see here. Almost 
almost 11 times EBITDA. Wow. Starting at three, getting all the way to 11. I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that you didn't have to spend months with spreadsheets and projections. And I mean, it, literally, you, you, you went back and had them reevaluate the company? Well, they did. But I think it's, let's be, I want to be fair to IBM in this case. I do not want to portray, portray them as inadequate in, in making this deal. They went back and modeled among themselves how much revenue they could generate from our predictive modeling technology among their existing clients. Second, this was a vehicle for them to expand their touch points within their major within their major companies. They would no longer be limited to the CIO. They could go to the CMO as an example, uh, the chief sales uh, officer. They could go to the CFO with, with uh, uh, various uh, scenarios here if needed capital was required. So we opened up the C-suite for them through this product. And when they begin to model out the potential revenue, um, that gave them space and support to jump from three to eight and a half um, on up to the 1.2 that we finally have of revenue in that case. Um, so that's how they did it. They did their own pro forma modeling of this of this series of technologies that we had, had invented. That's helpful for sure. Um, how important was the uh, predictive modeling technology in in their overall view of of the value of your company? Well, it would. It gave IBM first mover advantage because there was nothing in the marketplace that used neural networks, artificial intelligence, uh, to the degree it was artificial at the time. That is, it was in its infancy at the time. Um, today, that same product, unless it's IBM has updated it and c continued to do so, uh, it was. It's like the automobile industry today. It's like having about a. Uh, a 1913 Ford uh, compared to a, a 2019 Ford. Uh, that's how fast technology has moved in that space. Now we have augmented technology, artificial intelligence, um, and whole types of hybrids of all of those going forward. And it's being used in, in a number of business spaces that it was never used before. I guess what I'm trying to drive at is, is do you believe the deal would have been done had it not been for the proprietary IP that you developed? If you were just a generic consulting firm doing project-based consulting, you still had 153 employees, do you, do you think you could have... I mean, it's hard to know, but would you know if you had to guess, how important was that, that, that product to IBM's overall appetite to buy your business? I think it was critical. I mean, we had a research division uh, in which many of those employees were attached to our research division versus the consulting division. But look at it this way. You have a client here that's got technology that you want. If you don't, how fast could we build it if we don't buy it? And I'm sure they went through that analysis and they decided it would be far easier, cheaper, and quicker to buy it because they knew uh, that if we would be entertaining 
the sale of our company to IBM, we would be entertaining the sale of it to any one of their competitors. And at that time, they were really expanding their global services consulting efforts because they had far more margin in it than they did in their hardware side and or their software side. Let's go through the diligence process. So you you agree to this almost 11 times EBITDA offer. What was due diligence like? Well, uh, it was pretty straightforward. Uh, We had taken some time to prepare before. uh, Well, let me back up. At the time, they wanted to bring their IBM consultants in to learn about this technology. That's when Dave Jost, the CFO, uh, and myself, uh, he's since passed away, but he and I decided we better we better get this company uh, in ship shape, et cetera. And that was before data rooms or anything else. That's where you set aside a, a war room and you stacked all of the, the documents required for the due diligence process. Um, so we were we were pretty well prepared by the time we got the term sheet. Uh, we didn't let them see anything. Uh, other than our past five years of performance uh, and our three years of projections going forward. And as it turned out, we were, uh, our projections were lower than what they realized going forward. So um, uh, they, they bared down terrifically on the, um, on the historical financials. And they remodeled and recast the balance sheets and the P&Ls in terms of where they thought the company could go as they modeled out what they could sell through global services division um, uh, at, at that point. So um, when, you, when you're faced with a, de- a defensive buy, which they wanted to take us off the market so that we couldn't sell what we had intended to one of their competitors. Did they know that was a, th- a threat? Did they had you threatened as much? Oh no, not at all. But when they looked at our client list and they saw that we had worked with McKinsey, we'd worked with Bain, uh, HP was a client of ours, and we were doing similar work for HP that we were for IBM. They got the message pretty quickly. Got it. So we were talking about diligence and what was surprising or or the most difficult part of diligence. Well, it was the verification of our financials, and they uh, I still have this note. They sent a note to our CFO that, that this particular due diligence team said that they had never seen a company with cleaner financials than we had. Um, wow. And that builds a great deal of trust um, when you're in the negotiating room. Um, they know that if you are speaking of something in the future and you, they look back and see how good you have been in the past, you're just more credible in that end. And I think that goes a long way in negotiations. Um, they looked at our customer base significantly. They looked in it after looking at our governance, doc, governance documents, our financial documents, uh, and our technology. Those was the order that they t- took a look. Then they took a look at our customer base. Our customer, we didn't have anything under a Fortune uh, 500 company. Um, we had some privately held companies that were a little less than uh, a little less than that, but well headed to falling into that um, uh, Fortune 500 group. And then we were serving the global 200, and they saw that as a major mark. But they confirmed 
our reputation with our current clients uh, as another part of that due diligence. In fact, it, it was a difficult time for us to give up the names of our contacts because that meant that we were disclosing we were selling our company. And our fear was we would lose the clients we had if our clients knew that we were going to sell the company. Um, but the way we worked that out is that uh, IBM assured our clients that we were a part of the transaction, that they were not planning to come in and replace us. And they did not, by the way, replace us. They looked at litigation, by the way, uh, past, present, and future, and it was good that we didn't have any in our 18-year history. Uh, but they looked hard to see, since they were going to make a stock purchase, they want to make sure they were going to pick up some legacy liability in future uh, litigation. I'll just I'll just speak directly to my my listeners, Gary, for a second, and that is one of the key distinctions between a stock and an asset sale. Most acquirers will want to buy your assets because they won't inherit your obligations, legal obligations. Whereas you will probably want to sell your stock because it's got favorable most in most tax jurisdictions favorable tax treatment, uh, and also the buyer then inherits your essentially your uh, whatever liabilities your company has. Uh, you know. Lawsuits yeah. in the closet, et cetera. Today, today, that's not as much of an issue as it used to be because you can insure around uh, legacy liabilities. Um, and if someone demands a stock purchase versus an asset purchase, then typically the buyer will come back and say, okay, we'll split the cost of the premium with you to insure around potential liabilities uh, downrange. The insurance premium. Um, that, yeah, and of course, that wasn't that wasn't possible then because there were no insurance insurers insuring against future liabilities. Gary, I'm curious to know. Obviously, your co-founders uh, and and stockholders were involved in in this process. How did you reveal to the rank and fly, file employees this 153 employee workforce that you had sold the company? Uh, that's a great question. I think telling the employees um, um, it is the timing of that is, is critical, so you don't lose good people. They may not be they not they may not be your strongest people, but they're good people. We chose once we got the term sheet, we chose to call an employee meeting and tell those folks that we are selling the company, hopefully, if we get through the due diligence process and the negotiations on the purchase and sale agreement. But we are selling the company. However, part of the terms of that agreement is all of you are guaranteed jobs when we close the sale. And that guarantee will continue uh, for a six-month period for everyone. And in some, for, for some of our employees, it will be longer. We what was the reaction? To, yeah. Oh. They were when they found out who it was, um, uh, which the first time we met with them, we told them it was IBM. They were they were ecstatic. Um, they thought it was a real coup that they'd be working for IBM because IBM obviously has a great reputation, blue chip company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. and we increased the salaries of all of our employees um, uh, as part of that negotiation. Uh, they took our uh, defined contribution plan inside and awarded some other options for some of the uh, 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 staff. Uh, so the 
they could IBM wanted to keep the staff as much as we wanted them not to be fired. Um, uh, and I, I think most good acquirers today, uh, while they look at the synergies that they can uh, attach themselves to to bring down the cost of the acquisition, today's world's changing to the extent that they a good acquirer wants to keep the best and the brightest of the employees there. Absolutely, for sure. Gary, I'd be curious on a personal level. I mean, you obviously were the majority shareholder in this company. Uh, from what you've described, you made a lot of money personally from the sale. How did that money affect you personally? I mean, did you buy yourself a trophy? Uh, did you do anything to sort of mark the uh, the sale? Um, we uh, owned a, uh, a vacation home in Vail, Colorado. That was our second home. We were living in St. Louis at the time. And our decision was that we would take a portion of that money and remodel that home. That is enlarging it because our children uh, were all getting married and that meant more children and grandchildren. And we wanted to have enough room for the entire family to celebrate Christmas and New Year's with us. Uh, So we took a portion of the money and remodeled the home, updated it, and expanded uh, our vacation home, and then eventually moved there as our permanent home. Uh, But that's the only thing. The rest went into uh, savings and investments and so forth. Um, I I guess I would tell you I think that's that's the case with the other five partners as well. No one went out on a spending binge or anything like that. Uh, We were just Midwestern people that pretty conservative in our nature and and uh, it, it was it was a glorious event I bet. Gary, I appreciate you sharing the story with us. I know that we're going to have people wanting to follow up with you. Um, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Are you, are you on LinkedIn or do you, can you send people to a website? What's the best way for people to reach out? Sure. Well, they can come to our website. Uh, the website is uh, gemstrategymanagement.com. Uh, you can GEM email, strategy management. Yeah, GEM strategy management.com. Uh, you can email me at um, uh, gmiller at gem strategy management.com. GEM strategy management.com is the website. Gary right. Miller, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.